Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And today we begin the reading of Leonard Picard's masterful novel, The Rose of Paracelsus. It's, well, it's actually more than a novel, but we'll call it that for now. So, if you've already listened to Podcast 609, which is an introduction to this book, and to Podcast 629, which is praise from people all over the world for Leonard and for this book, well, then you've probably been eagerly awaiting today's podcast of a reading of Chapter 1. As you will hear, this first chapter is actually read by Leonard Picard himself. There have been many people responsible for getting us to this point, mainly Kat and Alexa Lakey. Then there are also the countless friends of Leonard's all over the world who, in different ways, have contributed to keeping Leonard's story alive. And, as you'll hear in just a moment, many prominent scholars have joined in to add expert commentary to these readings, uh, some of whom you're going to hear from today. And I don't want to forget to thank the friends and supporters of these podcasts, including the core of the salon who support me on Patreon. Most importantly, however, we all have Leonard Picard to thank for not only a magnificent work of art, but for his great spirit, a spirit that is an inspiration for us all. Although I was uh, already well along on my second reading of The Rose of Paracelsus when uh, this reading by Leonard reached me, well, I got his book out and read along as I listened to him. Well, you know, for some time now, I figured that I was getting too old for something like this to happen again, but, well, my spine actually tingled as I heard Leonard reading to me while I read along. If you don't already have a copy of this book, well, you really should get one and read along with us. It's a, <laughs> it's a real trip. And, uh, by the way, whether you realize it or not, as you enter this world here in the salon right now with Leonard, you too have become a part of his story. Now, here are the Lakey sisters. Hello, and welcome to the first full chapter episode of the Rose of Paracelsus podcast, titled Highlander. My name is Kat. And my name is Alexa. If you're unfamiliar with William Leonard Picard, his book, and this podcast project, we suggest that before you proceed, go back and listen to episode 609 of the Psychedelic Salon, where we introduce the story. We also recommend watching the short film that Kat made on the topic, which Lorenzo links to in episode 629. We're going to start this episode off with a quote from Carlo Rivelli. Carlo is a theoretical physicist, founder of loop quantum gravity theory, and the author of several internationally acclaimed bestsellers on physics, translated into more than 40 languages. Carlo recently published an article about the Rosa Paracelsus in the leading Italian newspaper, The Corriera della Sera. Here is a portion of what he said. It's a massive 650-page work, halfway between autobiography and fantastic history, written in an extremely refined, cultured, intense, very rich language. What immediately amazes is the language, an English rich in endless vocabulary, with an archaic Elizabethan cadence, where reality and exaggeration, intensity and depth, intertwine continuously and merge with each other. But what slowly emerges from the book is something deeper, a gaze full of love and compassion, 
that embraces the layered complexity of reality and opens up perspectives never seen before. There is a wisdom and sweetness that indicates the boundless and luminous spaces for the whole of humanity, its sacredness, its moving beauty. The rose is like a slow brooding song to this vision, written by a great soul, sweet and kind, with compassion and love, from the black background of a concrete steel cell, two meters by three, where it languishes without the comfort of friends or love for almost 20 years. Highlander, chapter one of the book, was recorded by Leonard himself. It was pieced together from a series of around 10 phone calls from within the maximum security prison he currently resides in. If you listen closely, you can occasionally hear the ambient sounds of the prison in the background as Leonard read the chapter aloud in the early morning hours, using his precious limited phone calls to bring it to you. Each chapter in this podcast series will be read by a different voice, and some of the upcoming readers include Benedictine Monk, Brother David Steindl Rost, Ben Sessa MD, and many others. We're going to break partway through the episode to help listeners digest the first sequence. We'll hear some thoughts on the first passage by psychedelic researcher and postdoctoral scholar Nishé Devineau. Here's a short excerpt from her commentary to give you a taste. Hi, my name is Nishé Devineau, and I'm here to share some thoughts about Leonard Ricard's The Rose of Paracelsus. Now, I have a PhD in comparative literature, and I'm used to reading, I guess, what you would call literary English, which is not how most people speak nowadays. And The Rose of Paracelsus is definitely written in literary high English, which means that for people who haven't studied literature, it can be difficult to follow along at first and maybe helpful to have a dictionary. There are a lot of words that are used that are not familiar from everyday conversation. But one thing that I've noticed for myself and also teaching literature to undergraduate students is that if you have patience with it and you can kind of bear that initial discomfort of not quite being used to words being used in this way, it really allows you to get into a specific frame of mind and mode of consciousness even that becomes natural as you go along. And so I'd just like to encourage anyone who steps into it and feels a little out of their depth to have patience and allow yourself to kind of get carried along. After the chapter concludes, you'll hear more from Nishay, and you'll also be treated to Julian Vane and Nikki Weird, who provide the commentary for the introductory episode and will be chiming in from time to time on future chapters. Our narrator is going to meet uh, the secret chiefs, you know, the mountain-dwelling, mysterious, Illuminati masters, figures who guide or attempt to guide the destiny of humanity. And that's what he encounters initially with Crimson at this liminal space by the sea. And then they sit around the fire and there's references to all kinds of things. There's alchemy in there, there's magic in there, there's the peyote ceremony of the Native American church is referenced in there. The idea of being a Rosicrucian, of behaving as though you are just a normal member of society, but then this deep covert operation to create planetary scale batches of LSD as part of a compassionate project to help evolve our species. It's a, it's a remarkable opening for a remarkable book. 
it combines the, the very grand with the very ordinary. So the practicalities of lighting a fire and the small details of the conversation and the way that someone's hands are moving. And then coupling that with the, the cosmic scale, the grand scale. We also have commentary from Ralph Juder, a Homeric scholar who will give us some insight into the unique literary style of the Rose of Paracelsus. The first chapter of The Rose is a very strong starting point for the book. It sets the atmosphere, the scene, and the tone of the book. It launches it, you could say, straight into the stratosphere. Reading it feels at times like a tightrope act, because the language used is so finely calibrated and highly strung that any slip would feel like falling off that rope. This is the first important aesthetic device we have to take note of. The artificiality of the language used in this book. It is a literary language informed by vast amounts of reading the author has undertaken and is undertaking. He uses deliberately and at times old-fashioned literary language which originated from a very different societal and ethical conditions than the modern undercover drug world he is partly depicting. By doing this, the author is willing to be judged by these standards. Does the choice of this style work or not? The first chapter is a good example that it does work, that the author has made a wise decision to use a language which is a beautiful artifact, basically. Once again, we suggest picking up a copy of this book to follow along. Highlander begins with Leonard's first encounter with a man named Crimson, a member of the Six. The Six are an elusive group of chemists who create planetary-sized batches of LSD in extreme secrecy and reverence. We won't give away any more than that, but instead invite you to settle in and enter the world of the Rose of Paracelsus on Secrets and Sacraments, as read by William Leonard Picard himself. Paracelsus on Secrets and Sacraments with three epigraphs one by Lewis Carroll May this forever be a secret between yourself and me one by Thomas de Quincey from Writings and his Suspiria de Profundis insolent vaunt of Paracelsus, that he could restore the original rose or violet out of the ashes settling from its combustion. The last by Aristophanes, so that we are far away, the most ancient of all things blessed, and that we are of love's generation. There are manifest manifold signs. We have wings. The dedication page for the one who wept. These writings are a literary experiment. It is an extrapolation of the government's fictions at a federal trial, hypothesizing 
the existence of an international psychedelic conspiracy and evolved as well from the poetry and stories of Jorge Luis Borges. The experiment is to discover whether a classical form in the mannered language of Borges can be applied to a theoretical drug trafficking organization and to psychological phenomena often not accessible through prose. The cities and characters at times may seem unreal, as is the narrator, and these very words, the atoms of thought. In the form of a memoir describing a researcher's observations on a seductive group with special gifts, the tale is an effort to emulate certain works of Borges and thereby to embrace the medieval, the erotic, the infinite. It is the author's hope that the reader will find something memorable in these pages, even though the commonplace yields to the transcendent at a moment's reflection. The careful and accurate reader now enters this labyrinth of science, myth, and sensuality, cognition and compassion, surveillance and deception, and the trying of the human spirit. One might approach the material as it was written, slowly. Such a reader is invited to contact the author with comments, suggestions, and corrections. This is a living work, subject to revision and expansion. Those whose efforts are incorporated into subsequent editions will be cited or acknowledged at their thoughtful discretion and with enduring gratitude. Part 1, titled, A Simple Monk with an epigraph by T.E. Lawrence from Seven Pillars of Wisdom. The dreamers of the day are dangerous men, for they act their dream with open eyes to make it possible. Covering the manuscript is a page titled Report to the Human Subjects Committee. Harvard University Faculty of Arts and Sciences. And it reads, With the assistance of a grant through Harvard Medical School, a series of interviews has been conducted among the principals of various drug trafficking organizations in an effort to quantify the economics, public health burdens, and prevalence of certain drugs and uh, a in the instance of non-lethal drugs, both novel and synthetic, such as LSD, ayahuasca, to explore the lifestyles, personalities, characters, and motives of manufacturers, and B, in the instance of lethal addictive drugs, such as heroin, fentanyl, cocaine, methamphetamine, to observe the drug's progress from the farm gate or clandestine laboratory to the street user and the toxic outcomes from uncontrolled use. 
enclosed report consists of a personal field journal over four years, including relevant scenes in Cambridge and in foreign settings, focusing initially on the study of psychedelic manufacturers. As the committee will observe, there are inherent difficulties in preparing rigorous ethnographies on the psychedelic group. The challenges are similar to those experienced by ethnopharmacologists living for extended periods among remote Amazonian tribes during their practice of syncretic religions. Richard Evans Schultes at the Harvard Botanical Museum and his graduate students have applied these methods to indigenous groups in the Orinoco Basin and the Pantanal. Due to the unusual phenomena encountered, numerous historical recollections are embedded in the report. They may be helpful in distinguishing the observer from the observed. As a caveat, the committee will note that while illegal activity is not condoned herein, the descriptions of altered and visionary states often parallel existing records in the medical, forensic, and psychiatric literature to which these special histories may be supplemented. Respectfully submitted, Cambridge, Massachusetts. Chapter 1, titled Highlander, with an epigraph by Borges from The Man on the Threshold. But where was one to find them if they wander the earth lost and anonymous and are not recognized when they are met with, and not even they themselves know the high mission they perform. A quote from Orwell, 1984. You had to live, did live, from habit that became instinct, and the assumption that every sound you made was overheard, and except in darkness, every moment scrutinized. The last epigraph by Joyce, from a portrait of the artist as a young man. The stars began to crumble, and a cloud of fine stardust fell through space. And now we begin the narrative of chapter one. Her eyes were emerald and hermetic, her weathered face lit as if by benign witchcraft. An agile elderly woman of dignity and bearing, with waist-length white hair and loose braids. She was an ominous rose, bundled artfully in woolens of purple and red. An unexpected apparition, she descended to sit beside me. The dying sun and silver streams yielded to the moonrise. 
They are coming for you, she said. We watched as before as the solitary piper began playing to the full moon, standing with his fur sporan among the heath and harebells on our isolated hilltop. His double jacket, bonnet, ribbons fluttered in the sea wind. The plain mantle over his left shoulder was held by a brooch. His kilt, the hunting steward tartan. His black brogues shine beneath white spats. He was etched against fog banks cascading to the darkening ocean. His tall, dry stalks of broom leaned in the cool dust. Amid the salt air and spiky gorse, he fingered a haunting melody on his chanter. Five pipes and low octave drones seemed but a dirge until the skirling grew high and free, resounding Scotland the Brave. It was the Hunter's Moon celebration on this crisp October eve, when once each year only local villagers of Point Reyes, California, knew where to gather on Inverness Ridge to attend the Piper. And crocheted pullovers were clustered within blankets. We listened while below the lonely moors stretched like gray counterpanes to the edge of nothingness. They're coming for you, she said again, more intently. Now. How shall I recognize them, I ask? She could not hear the quickness of my heart. They are like stumbling through a mirror traveling across the sky. She whispered a few directions in the cultivated voice of a ballet grand dame, rich with Central European dialects, perhaps Hungarian or Czech. Her words were like a room full of moonlight to one's imprisoned blood. She had a spectral air, the holiness conferred by secrecy. Though formidable, she spoke almost inaudibly, as if presenting to the Inquisition. She referred to six people in the world who had the capacity to synthesize kilograms of LSD. She said they moved about the shadowy earth with solitary motives as the most devoted of societies. Others described them as an invisible cartel of theologians and mystagogues without weapons or violence, reputed by some within the underground to possess the preternatural equanimity of the battleground. I was visiting from Cambridge in graduate studies at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. A simultaneous appointment at Harvard Medical School as a drug policy fellow and research associate in neurobiology supported an interest in novel drugs and organizations. Through a baffling labyrinthine series of seemingly accidental encounters, I became aware of them and they of me. Yet they remained eternally elusive, unlocatable, unknowable, 
at an uncertain time, an unknown person had disclosed vaguely. One of the six might approach. After each encounter and vetting, perhaps another might appear, but ultimately only five of the six. It was a trackless mystery of no identities. Their names were to be replaced by shades ascending from scarlet, as were painted Homer's ships, crimson, indigo, vermilion, magenta, cobalt. At the appointed hour, I walked northward in the violet evening far along Lemontour Beach. There were no signs of human existence, only a monotony of ocean and wind-carved dunes. The surrounding fog was phantasmal with loneliness, as if one had left Earth's embrace. High seas were running with immense clouds of spray. Shivering, I kindled a small fire from driftwood and by its warmth began listening to a recording of Wagner's Der Ring de Nibelungen. The white noise as the booming waves folded in and upon themselves became double basses and bassoons, sustaining for an unearthly 136 bars the E-flat chords of Das Rheingold in the ring cycle, announcing the creation of the world. At the 108th measure, crimson materialized silently beside me. There was no fright at the presence of this international quarry, but an odd sense of greater safety. Upon leaving a small sailboat moored in a distant inlet on Tamales Bay, he had walked ten miles through the national seashore, hiking trails. He was casual, admiring the Pacific, mentioning sailing off Cape Cod in the South China Sea and the coastlines of Goa and Ibiza. His eyes were deeply set like a Navajo roadman, the visage of having seen the dancing flames and prayer fans and movement of spirit until the dawn woman brought water. His face of many years was smooth, as if reborn, tall with gray hair close to a crew cut, a beatific countenance at moments, he had the quick acuity of a heavily scheduled surgeon, his language mingled with scholarly asides. He wore a heavy, dark red cable knit over jeans and running shoes. Rangy and well-exercised, he could have been a Princeton crew alumnus, a, a rower carrying skulls from the boathouse to the lake. In his late fifties, his voice was at times retreating an academic, reflecting years of isolation in deserts and mountains, surrounded by literature and ranges of light. His eyes were hazel, like leaves in late autumn. 
He offered a sip of mango juice from an antique silver flagon, as if it were holy water. Within minutes, the sea floor itself, perhaps the entire continent, seemed to move ever so slightly, like some microscopic, profound, and irrevocable tectonic shift. The fire's heat against the cold sea air became the allegory for the worlds balanced by practitioners of these clandestine arts. I could only listen to his fantastic web of recollections and foretelling as he spoke softly, confiding mythic tales of remote laboratory sites. Sacred glass furnishes he said, disgorge illumined fragments of mind and blinding rivers. Alone and on their knees at these fountains of consciousness, singular beings pray for an end to suffering. Eternal evenings become crystal daybreaks, pierced by the morning star. At first, thinking him messianic, pontificating, perhaps a proponent of a some arcane religious heresy or ghastly folly, I felt mixed elation and alarm. There was a moral unease at his description of what could only be mere simulacra, but the changes were beginning. With his words, the beach became luminous as noon, as though the sky had knocked open there was the crackle of stars, then blood-red shelves of Magellanic clouds. The ocean was billowing cold and black, percussive between the screaming silences. The dunes were a moonscape of rubble. There is vision and fusion of thought and feeling, he said, as forgiveness for all blast heavenward. Absolute chaos renders to absolute certainty, wrenching ignominy and confusion, transmute to clarity and peace. The tranquil veils of Elysium are welcoming us. He fell silent. The sound of the sea began to evolve out of night. The hum of existence whispering secrets like some fantastic drug, but not so cruelly, for mine that evening was so vast that no mere substance dare mimic its majesty. It was the power of grace that compelled us. The seas cradled and released as if in play they flowed in bright streams reflecting the plumed branches of heaven above unrolling firmaments were full of incoherent raptures I sat speechless in a hypnagogic state while he seemed to transform in the shifting firelight and white noise and the reflections of ten thousand fingers of fractal silver waves into a spectrum of beings. He reaggregated as the alchemist Paracelsus, as the Gnostic wizard Hermes Trismegistus, 
as an ecclesiastical conspirator in 16th century Basel, as an itinerant tinker on a Scottish beach. He displayed the Dionysiac intoxication recalled by Euripides in the Bacchae, yet the solemnity of Delphic priest as clouds of myrrh trail from his oracular pronouncements. He became robot flesh from synthetic DNA and future avatars penetrating the present for just this one encounter than a Miocene hominid speaking unknown tongues before the advent of fire. He became the angel that St. John saw in the sun than all the healers and medicines of the world. The heretical anatomy of Galen and Vesalius, the antisepsis of Lister, the anesthesia of Crawford Long. Finally, the dreamlike lights show slowed. The changes merging into a single, still perfectly clear prospect. They appeared at last only crimson himself simply poking the embers around and placing driftwood, as if nothing at all had occurred except two friends warming themselves beneath the universal canopy. After the psychic conflagrations, I took quite some moments to recover. Something more you wish to know, he said, with gravitas. The night was a Damascene conversion into a privileged heterodoxy, like a berichment conferred by priest of concealed knowledge. In the end, one was grateful to discover, all was lucid. At first, it seemed a trial by self-immolation, where the duplicitous would go mad. But in the purity of my inquiry, I survived this first encounter, perhaps the last stage of their background check. I've been permitted a carefully limited glance at the edges of a worldwide system, the existence of which had never been proven. My writings henceforth were but a fitful remembrance, not only of these most uncommon of interviews, but a complex ephemera, barely recordable, yet absolute. They were so utterly unforgettable that in order for the observer to function, they must be forgotten. Rendered mute by all that had been said and seen, none of which was suitable for Harvard peer review, I managed to remember a question, finding a barely articulate voice. The mind, the mindset, what is required for your work? Other than the syntheses conducted by each of the six, he said, I specialize in basic security. The foci of the other five are different. My perspective cycles among 
Only a few realities, then repeats. Moving from window to window, I may in one view predatory opposing forces with weapons. In another, daisies strewn in a field like laughter. In another, the nightingale's cry on a southern night or an unmarked car at the wrong time of day or sublime ranges of forest and mountains and no walls. It's the schizophrenic life of a sentient herbivore at any moment devoured pitilessly, but living the long peace, grazing in serenity beneath untroubled skies. But how do you live each day? Upon waking, he said, I meditate on boundless tranquility and freedom, then through every hour keep submerged the cold sweat, the awareness of pervasive surveillance technologies, ubiquitous cameras, facial recognition, dossiers, and data banks. I constantly recognize fiercely armed governments, the control of radical thinking and non-obeisance, the data mining for single actors and organizations beyond the state's understanding. As I walk through cities, I'm cognizant of aerial, automotive, and pedestrian surveillance, the small armies of police disguised as laborers, bankers, cabbies, barflies, cocaine traffickers, and earnest fellow travelers. At this overwhelming disclosure, which at first seemed a highly functional paranoia, I noticed that Crimson was an island of contrast. His hands were toughened from splitting cords and fire-making, at the same time without tremor, possessing a connectedness between earth and sky. Yet his perfectly manicured fingers seemed capable of telegraphic flourishes, the precise rotation of stopcocks, the fine analytical measurement of exotic reagents. He emanated an electrical excitement suggestive of some great and wonderful secret. He unnervingly anticipated my every thought withdrawing gently when I grew fearful at his presence. Near this remarkable being, one of the six, it seemed no time for careless trivia. How do you avoid detection? I dress, act, and speak quite conservatively, striving to be forgettable, to leave no memory. One must be a gray man, perhaps a mild accountant of little means, to hide without a trace personal responsibility for the ecstasies, the orgasmic religiosities in millions of minds. At this frank admission, he looked to the sea. I was saddened by this painful description of his dichotomy, the 
chilling and necessary mechanisms for covert actions coexisting with his heightened aesthetic. His poetic stream of observations and acts rendered every moment deeply felt. It seemed the greatest irony that one who espoused divine unity and harmony would suffer in such cause a lifetime of being a virtual outcast. I seized upon his assertion of mimicking common habits, mores, and clothing to appear normal, even as he controlled some vast chimerical and stealthy machine. You practice a form of social invisibility. We dress for the environment, he said, like chameleons. So there are no sartorial affectations or signals as we move unnoticed among the mainstream. No capes or long hair or shaved skulls or tattoos or any distinguishing features. One becomes boring visually. It appears the ultimate conformist, hopeless to underground art and fashion. Yet the women have been known to affect fascinators among the pomp of English receptions or torn Levi's for a dismal bus ride to Corpus Christi. The sands were white meadows beneath the moon, drawing the brilliance of open sea. Crimson seemed a persecuted ecclesiastic fleeing gothic halls and cloisters, his intrigues majestic as the night horned with stars. Rather than sensing criminality, one felt the presence of great virtue. And your behavior is normal. We are considered wild men among a few, he said, but our Manner is entirely conventional, even drab or self-effacing. Forsaking all recognition for the improbability of detection, we practice blending in seamlessly. Upon contact with the public, we have easy courtesies and friendly eyes, exchanging simple words as though one has nothing to hide but also to not frighten anyone or provoke suspicion or even remembrance. White caps were racing, colliding into light showers of spray. The winds were chanting sort of litany, conjured up by fairies. But how do you remain balanced? As with Daniel among the lines, he said, one's heart cannot be conflicted even momentarily. Such enduring duplicity must be conducted with fearless grace. The life is difficult. Only by devotion to cognitive evolution can harboring constant deceits be made honorable. I speak here not of small syntheses, 
hundred grams or a million doses on occasion. But the requisite practices over decades for planetary scale batches. Crimson was not being sententious, but perceived correctly he was the prey constantly hunted by unseen international law enforcement and intelligence agencies. I listened to this lonely warrior behind enemy lines who spoke of a small but widespread underground that provided him with a modicum of respect, tolerance, and safety. He had committed a felony that would be penalized by life in prison not once, but for a lifetime. It was disconcerting that in beholding his face one saw not some cabalistic darkness, but a luminous compassion. Crimson, as one of the six, was a dedicated psychedelic manufacturer since his first exposure to a classical hallucinogen. In rare instances, my inquiry was permitted into other techniques by which he had somehow evaded arrest for decades. I learned of the rogue chemist methods of the trade-off of an unthreatened life for an inspired alienation, which must not be shared even with those he loved. He ceased his introspections for a while, then remarked, as you say in Zen, a hair's breadth deviation, and you're out of tune. I'd never once referred to my years before Harvard as a, a monk at Ho Sinji Monastery. The six had investigated me. Somewhat undone, I suggested taking some air. We walked in an unhurried way, arms crossed, even as the chill of the rolling gray ocean began to reach through us, we passed masses of kelp and sequoia driftwood, watching the sandpipers at the edge of riplets and gulls sailing over the crest, while the sighting of kestrels, eagles, and egrets redeemed our intrusion into this sacred shore. Stopping at last, we saw in the mist flowing over our distant embers the sleeping eye of some great beast. Returning, we hastened our fire with eucalyptus. Warming ourselves, we faced the sea and talked of magical things, then of desperate moments. The covert lifestyle, Crimson mused, the practice necessary to support clandestine psychedelic manufacture may be applied to any severely outlawed activity. The hidden other life, terrible in its stress, requires the most delicate decisions. Metaphorically, perhaps the only way it can be described, the path is fine as a silver web, treacherous as an icy couloir, yet success the completion of a synthesis is like the dawn, the end of dreams. Trails of smoke from our fire dwindled away among the stars. 
ribbons of darkness turned throughout the enigmatic diamond sky. Light sea winds invigorated the blue-black littoral of the coast. Eager to learn more, and not wanting to divert him from his poetic illusions, offered some jasmine tea from a flask. My questioning became very gentle, like a novitiate who knew nothing. And what decisions might those be, I asked. It is as if we were early Christians, he ventured, clinging together among hostile Romans or pagan Visigoths before legions worshipping Saturn. One decides early on whether one's elixir is sacramental or poisonous, whether the outcome is benevolent or criminal, a hallowed duty or a tragic caprice. The moral issues are resolved through repeated personal sufferings and illuminations, agonies and ecstasies no less than any acolyte. We were among the first exposed to the substance. And you concluded that distribution of psychedelics was, in the aggregate, benign. Among a narrow subset of the population, he said, who wish it, not for everyone. LSD is only the first synthetic non-lethal compound in an accelerating psychopharmacological revolution of evolutionary magnitude, the dimensions and social impact of which we hardly can anticipate. Evolutionary magnitude... Consider the primordial firemakers of Homo erectus, the cave artist at Lascaux or Grote Chauvet Pont d'Arc. Think of the coming of the prophets, the transition from papyrus to electrons for communication. For those who first knew of the light, special knowledge and practices were closely held for the future unraveled in manifold directions, both that of plague and salvation. Societies divided on the issues, moral introspection was paramount. What does one do with the sacred, with utterly transforming technology? Withhold it or release it? None were decisions for governments but for the makers. I waited for his elevated, almost scholarly discourse to resolve into actual precepts that could be recorded. Although he possessed several distinct voices, his language at this time was antiquated, Dickensian. It seemed stilted to the modern ears, though he had spent years alone, removed and hidden settings, comforted only by Victorian literature or the writings of Virgil or St. Augustine or Plotinus. How do you protect yourself and those who protect you, I ask, conceding both his moral imperative and his fiercely armed opposition? 
He looked somberly at me. Would a brief tutorial be helpful? A day in the life of a hypothetical chemist or distributor of some future drug? I assured him it would, stirring the fire gently to not distract him. Let's assume a compound that induces profound religiosity. Its adherents are, are persecuted as no longer by Caesar, but by governments preferring sole control over advances in neurochemistry. The same security rules would apply to clandestine chemists confronting another inevitability, the first substances significantly enhancing cognition, memory, and learning. Imagine the social outcomes, not only of these, but of erotogenics that hide libido. Crimson, clearly safe at our obscure campfire up this secluded coastline, began expounding with vignettes on furtive arts, seldom practiced in our civilized interdependency. I remained quiet throughout the night as he described in staccato burst or long reveries how not to attract attention while constructing a type of psychological nuclear bomb affecting millions was carried easily in one's pocket in the form of a drug potent in micrograms. Although too specialized to be included in a rigorous research monograph at Harvard, his portrayals were tantalizing and interruptions unthinkable. The iron of night became fleetingly vain with trails of light. Manifold spectra recalling the dialectical dreams of the first imagery. The fire behind crimson was radiant into a halo around him. Together here we are considering the mystical intersection of mind and brain, he said, in service of humanity. Even while some regard distribution as foolhardy and criminals, others honor it. He alluded to the Kabbalah's description of the 13 keepers of the mysteries, men and women spread across the earth in trivial occupations, cobblers, camel herders, beggars, but upon whom the world unknowingly may depend. He deliberated thus ex cathedra for some time, his words punctuated by the sharp crying of a gull, the pounding of the winter storm surf on the beachhead. Upon the fire, we placed redwood washed down from the cloud-bound Humboldt coast. As it steamed and snapped in the blazes, he looked intently at me. He stopped theorizing. It's better that we all teach you in small ways. There are six chemists. Four others I shall speak, Crimson confided. We may be thought of as occupying the surface of a modern Eucharist, a crystal. While within the jewel, we all prepare the sacrament individually in remote sites. 
but each thereafter in returning to the world is responsible for different facets. We then focus separately on practical aspects that ensure continued viability of the system. What are these practical aspects beyond the synthesis? I develop fundamental security, the habits to make arrest or seizure improbable. The others, whom we'll designate by the cryptonyms indigo, vermilion, magenta, and cobalt, have different roles. We constantly share what we learn. Tell me of the others. Indigo contemplates ritual preparation of the Eucharist, the sanctity and precision of labs, and their surreptitious transfer from site to site. Vermilion monitors distribution. He conducts downstream counterintelligence with gifted woman operatives who employ forms of tantric unions, esoteric erotic practices. At this he hesitated, processing some emotional memory. He went on. Magenta is concerned with research, the future, anticipating neuroscience, the next touchstone of evolution. Cobalt considers high-level threats, infiltrates governments, and watches intelligence and enforcement agencies. Spy versus spy. Together, we survive. And the sixth matter, woman, that discovery we must leave to you and your readers. I stacked rough pine driftwood until our ceremonial flames grew hotter and more luxuriant against the translucent purple night, with a gunshot crackling of resins, live sparks swirled upwards like fireflies in the air, sea air cool and delicious. The sky freshened, the smashing breakers and hissing foam, finally all that could be heard. Barely visible waves, now exposed by the dissolution of mist, Reflected in broad paths of light to the far edge of the waters, the fullness of the October moon. Suspended in high, horizontal, dark clouds that curled and pointed as if in a Tibetan painting, its lunar whiteness was of sublime and eternal beauty. Before me, a second shift in perception occurred, for the veil was removed this night. The orb seemed to possess a powerful, mute aesthetic, one increasingly disturbing in its perfection. It became an apocalyptic profundity, rendering a sudden comprehension of the divine in the irrefutable art of God. I had to turn away so that I could function and not before its unutterable presence, wildly dance and shout, or kneel. As he observed my staggering glimpses, voice arose in a grounding way in sepulchral tones, 
as in a vast auditorium. You wish to learn the mechanics of it all, you say. Whatever is comfortable for you, I returned with the greatest effort. He said nothing, avoiding only with difficulty the ineffable transcendence so starkly plain before us. I managed only a few words. Your special arts might live forever. He hesitated in my awkward overture, then viewed internally some realm of future and past. Regaining my footing somewhat, I cautiously tried again, appealing to his historical perspective. Read one day by someone in need, a revolutionary in time of oppression, a soul in your path. Why not pass the knowledge on? Would that not be the apex, he said, of narcissistic illusion? But so it is with all true callings from neurology to theology to, dare I say it, the prosecutor's imperative. He became pensive and solemn. The firelight began flickering like sheet lightning, plunging us into anonymity. A small premonitory unease manifested a tingle of disaster that labored and fled like slow wing beats through the spokes of darkness. A stream of ants escaping the smoking castaway pine branches fell one by one into the fire. Crimson, down from his reveries, considered the subject. The occult life in modern times, he said, in American Europe, Russia, and Southeast Asia, the domains of my experience, excluding South America and its obscene cocaine trade, is an exercise in cultivating two or more parallel worlds and moving easily among them. Pale, rinsed dawn was breaking. We were sticky with dampness and salt. My wavering, skeptical mind had foundered against his most exalted dedication. One felt a foreboding of terrible perils, for this sage spirit was encircled by genuine enemies. I pressed him with care. What are the rules of conduct? One could write a treatise on them. They must be observed as religiously as the 300 vows of Vipassana monks in the Thai forest. At the slightest misjudgment, one is swept away from the purity of graceful practice into the cesspool of captivity. Let's call them Washington rules, as in D.C., followed so one's demise is met with dignity rather than walking abused in forlorn circles around a prison track. The undertow drew its hissing breath at the terrible cruelty of his fate. Above a froth-chained sea, the gulls screamed and herons rasped. The useless horror of penal servitude 
forever shadowed the six, immured behind some wall. One could be driven half mad by the squalor of confinement. Beyond our fire, piles of rotted lichen-encrusted redwood logs were trapped in moon-bright sand. I thought of the last caribou crawling in heavy snows, their shaky, frightened calves, the frolicking wolves. Washington rules, then, I agreed, quite eager to learn. It was nearing first light. He abruptly turned to go, confused and apprehensive at perhaps overstepping my charter with invasive questions. I mumbled some apologies and absurdly asked for his phone number. As the night had taught, he had thought far ahead of me. Experience is more indelible than rhetoric, friend. Visit San Francisco Saturday, anywhere downtown. At sunrise, I'll find you. Quickened, I rushed to reply lightheartedly, recalling his penchant for many costumes. How should I dress? Bring your gym clothes, he said simply. A little smile. He then slowly raised his hand and walked away, his fire-lit body receding like a phantom in the pale obscurity by the singing sea. With the weariness of this immensely long vigil, I trembled quietly at his sudden disappearance. I remained crouched on the beach for hours as the fire withdrew to embers, then to ash. The moon, not unusual, fading now into the ocean. The incoming tide, like the slow pulse of the earth, erased in great rhythmic sweeps his footprints, till at last there was no trace whatsoever We're going to break now and hear some commentary from Nishay Devineau. After she's done, we'll play the rest of Leonard's recording, and there will be more discussion after the chapter concludes. In the introduction, or before the introduction, there's a report to the Human Subjects Committee at Harvard University. Of course, Leonard went to Harvard and studied the topics described in this book. And so there's this sort of realistic frame narrative accompanying the story where this is a document, an ethnography, describing Leonard's uh, introduction to a group of chemists described as being involved with the drug trafficking organization of some kind, And right off the bat, we have this distinction between two very different, even opposing tendencies. On the one hand, you have A, in the instance of non-lethal drugs, both novel and synthetic, LSD, ayahuasca, etc., 
to explore the lifestyles, personalities, characters, and motives of manufacturers. So specifically studying those who pursue non-addictive and even anti-addictive drugs in opposition to B, in the instance of lethal addictive drugs, heroin, fentanyl, cocaine, methamphetamine, to observe the drug's progress from the, the farm gate or clandestine laboratory to the street user and the toxic outcomes from uncontrolled use. Because this is very much a story about a, a war, almost, between conflicting motivations. There's a group of chemists, of which the character Leonard becomes involved, who are actively seeking to liberate humankind from these opposing forces of con con control and constriction and habit and imprisonment, ultimately. So it's, 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 it's an it's a allegory of this fight for freedom in the face of this fight to imprison the population and through the population's consciousness. So that comes up very early on in this letter to Harvard about the ethnography, and I just wanted to point that out. But into the first chapter, immediately we're faced with this sort of high, high literary use of English, and we're kind of thrust into this mysterious uh, event where we, we have this woman speaking to Leonard, and she says, they are coming for you, without initially explaining who that they are. And then it continues a little bit farther down that page. They're coming for you, she said again, more intently, now. So there's a sense of kind of urgency and mystery. And slowly it becomes apparent that Leonard is becoming acquainted with this mysterious group of six chemists, only five of whom are introduced explicitly in the story. And even though the language is off the bat, metaphorical, when, when this woman elaborates and Leonard asks how he's going to recognize the, the chemist, she responds, they are like stumbling through a mirror, traveling across the sky. Following along, we find out that although it has this sort of fictional, fantastic mode of representation with that kind of description and the language used there, it's also grounded in the ordinary world. So on page 17, it continues, I was visiting from Cambridge in graduate studies at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, a simultaneous appointment at Harvard Medical School as a drug policy fellow and research associate in neurobiology, supported an interest in novel drugs and organizations. So there's a, there's a very concrete reason for Leonard to be interested in this organization and studying them from a kind of instrumental project dissertation um, mode of investigation, and yet there's something more to that story beyond just an intellectual interest. He mentions there's seeming coincidences kind of leading him to this group of people and things lining up in strange ways. So the conscious mind's ideas for what's going on isn't necessarily the whole story here. I'd like to also reference uh, Lana Cook is a literary scholar who's written about a psychedelic aesthetic in literature. And I find her distinction between uh, realism and fantasy really helpful. And she describes, she describes writers in the tradition of the psychedelic aesthetic who establish realistic or real-world details to construct a familiar ground for readers 
while simultaneously disrupting readers' normative sense of reality through more fantasy or fantastical elements. So the realism, in her words, acts as the narrative bait and hook, while the fantasy scoops the readers out of the water. And in this context, the figurative language, and particularly novel metaphors, serve an important function, that they render unfamiliar concepts accessible to readers and also unbind readers from their habitual, ordinary perspectives on reality. So there are moments in this book where the reality is very accessible and normal, and Leonard is at Harvard going about from classes to classes and thinking about the upcoming exam. And that's very important and strategic because there's that baseline of familiarity. And then when things get strange and they get really strange at certain parts, very normal, Leonard describes in terms of uh, strange phenomena that begin to occur. The implication is that this is not some fantasy about Mars or some other planet or dimension. This is our world but just an, a non-ordinary experience of the world um, that Leonard is drawn into by proximity to the substances and these chemists in particular. Because later on, especially, just being around some of these chemists has alterating, <laughs> altering effects on Leonard's consciousness. And so the language changes to reinforce that diversion or difference from ordinary reality. So in terms of the chemist, because in this first chapter, he meets, Leonard meets Crimson, who is the, fir- the first of the chemists who he's exposed to. And Crimson materializes, and it's just the two of them, and they start having this conversation. But rather than, fe- even though he kind of appears out of nowhere, Leonard mentions feeling an odd sense of greater safety or familiarity, even though he's never met this person before. And the line between Leonard and these other chemists is not completely clear in the sense that a lot of descriptions of the chemists here and later in the book have very explicit parallels to aspects of Leonard's own personality. So you can read this in multiple ways. You can read it as these are separate people or these are reflections of different facets of personality. For example, on page 18, describing Crimson's language, this also describes Leonard's language, and especially in correspondence, even outside of the context of this book. So the line is on page 18, his language mingled with scholarly asides, and a little later down, in his late 50s, his voice was at times retreating and academic, reflecting years of isolation in deserts and mountains, surrounded by literature and ranges of light. And so, of course, we know that Leonard's been in prison for decades now, and his communication style is definitely inflected by the many works of literature that he's been accompanied by in his prison cell. So it's a description, it's a description of Crimson, but it's also a description of Leonard and of this book, as you read along. And there's another example on page 24. So this is describing Crimson again. Quote, Although he possessed several distinct voices, his language at this time was antiquated, Dickensian. It seemed stilted to the modern ear, as though he had spent years alone, removed in hidden settings, comforted only by Victorian literature, or the writings of Virgil, St. Augustine, or Plotinus. So reading this, it's equally a description of the book. It's, it's that kind of 
Victorian almost language that seems stilted or anachronistic to the ear. But again, there's this distancing effect caused by that in the sense that it's the real world but represented as if from another age and then used using that as a baseline for the normal representation of the world that then becomes increasingly estranged during these non-ordinary interludes that you could say. And his first non-ordinary interlude actually occurs in this chapter during the conversation with Crimson where he's given some mango juice to drink out of a, a flask. Um, this is on page 18 of my copy. So it says, he offered a sip of mango juice from an antique silver flagon, as if it were holy water. Within minutes, the sea floor itself, perhaps the entire continent, seemed to move ever so slightly, like some microscopic, profound, and irrevocable tectonic shift. And then Crimson begins to speak in really compelling, almost prophetic or mystical terms, uh, in words that are pretty abstract, but also compelling. And so listening to these words, Leonard is also here serving as almost a stand-in for the reader in the sense that he's like, wow, this guy's kind of, seems like he's kind of onto something, but also uncertain not used to hearing people speak in this way. For example, so later on page 18, Leonard says to the reader, at first thinking him messianic, pontificating, perhaps a, propo a proponent of some arcane religious heresy or ghastly folly, I, fixed, I f felt mixed elation and alarm. There was a moral unease at his description of what only could be mere simulacra, but the changes were beginning. So Leonard here is suggesting that Part of him is compelled or you know impressed with what he's hearing. Part of him is unsure of where this person's coming from. And yet despite the uncertainty, there's actual changes that start happening. So regardless of the intellectual assessment, the ideas are doing something to Leonard and altering his consciousness as he's listening. And it reaches a crescendo in this sort of fractal expo explosion outside of normal space-time, on um, the next page, he says, I, I sat speechless in a hypnagogic state while he seemed to transform in the shifting firelight and white noise and the reflections of 10,000 fingers of fractal silver waves into a spectrum of beings. And this is a combination of beings from ancient history, healing figures in history, and reaching into the future. It says, he became robot flesh from synthetic DNA, and future avatars penetrating the present for just this one encounter, etc. And then all of that fractal connection through time folds back down and it's just two people sitting and talking by a fire as if nothing at all had occurred. And this is a microcosm of what the entire book does because there are these moments of, like I was saying, normal going about school and then suddenly there are these Asides where Leonard follows these figures into other realms of consciousness, other modes of perception beyond normal space and time perception, and encounters these chemists as figures who have not only developed a facility with these many modes of being and modes of consciousness, but also are engaged in this 
both mundane and cosmic war of being on the run and fighting for what they believe is right, which is freedom and the protection of the, of the weak and the young. The dank, moist, green San Francisco wharves were like a shattered fragment of an abandoned temple. The cold dawn exhaled rising damps and flotsam under the optic of the sky. As the edge of day filtered from the Berkeley horizon, the bay bloomed with iridescence. Mirages flickered across the water. My position had been chosen randomly. I looked for any movement. It seemed an unlikely place to be pinpointed, even by a crack surveillance team. The massive 19th century clock on the ferry building ticked to 4.30 a.m. Glowing in the twilight, its circumference breathed with the last effects of Crimson's fireside revelation. Even in the devout stillness of the morning, the leaves of tall imported palms still fluttered almost imperceptibly in the breeze of mind. It seemed I stood at the crossroads of past and future, seeing in all directions. For nearby, the monks and nuns at Ho Shinji Monastery moved with hands folded in prayer to the Zendo for morning meditation as the great temple bell sounded sonorously, while in Cambridge students hurried to the memorial church bells, tracking a new frost in Harvard Yard and giddily discussing Heidegger. In Moscow, a mathematician's daughter kissed her father farewell as he grappled with the Poincaré conjecture. And in Mazar e Sharif, heroin cooks in dirty loincloths squatted before kerosene soaked pits filled with morphine paste and conjured devils that fled to the west. It was a cloudless morning, the bay with small skirmishing wavelets, the seafront windless. I leaned against heavy pylons in the cold salt air infused with these memories and premonitions of worlds to come, all finally resolved to a single scholar in no place in particular, awaiting those with no name, and who would dare release to entire populations their antidote for addiction, even at the cost of their own lives. As I nursed hot tea from a thermos, Crimson and his unnerving manner came from nowhere, bid good morning in soft Russian and German, and smoothly collected me. We walked together as the city ceased its fitful dreaming, until we breakfasted in a run-down coffee shop that catered to drunks and the homeless. Old men wearing dirty knitted gloves with no fingers rattled on nonsensically, while a slatternly tired waitress poured coffee beneath a handwritten sign. 
no refills. She kindly allowed the destitute the sinecure of a warm corner. Greasy menus were tuck-taped to wooden tables. Resigned eyes looked vacantly through smeared windows at forbidden skyscrapers. Crimson sat across from me, wearing sweat-stained coveralls from the Salvation Army free box, and had a two-day-old stubble. Eager to hear of covert methodology, even over chipped bowls of instant gruel, I asked about Washington rules. Crimson deftly held the conversation to his prospects of finding food stamps, menial labor, or public assistance. He left a $20 tip under the plate for a $2 meal because of the waitress's soft eyes for the lost. We speak in public, he said, only that appropriate to the listeners, even complete fiction. Loitering near a bus stop, he was indistinguishable from an indigent person. After some minutes, I realized he had no car and awaited no one. We boarded the Folsom bus, standing at rush hour, riding wordlessly into humanity's ocean of personal agendas. Tourists, both determined and directionless, workers asleep or awakened, those worried or frivolous, the pursuers and the pursued. A tall, slender girl in ripped danskins and denim jacket, carrying a book bag with a pale logo of the university at Maastricht, stood gripping the top of a seat. She appeared a severely dressed-down model with no makeup, an ivory face, spectacles with fine gold rims, and her bright blonde hair and Eastern European braids. Above her endless black leggings flashed a slice of black watch tartan microskirt. She edged slowly through the compressed crowd like a gymnast, leaving in her wake a little frisson of heat and disquiet, eyes down and excusing herself in almost unheard Dutch but with an evident Glaswegian overtone. She stepped out with head held high in a practice pirouette of her narrow hips over the gutter, as if in another age she were delicately disembarking a phaeton assisted by a liveried footman. Looking neither to the left nor right, she disappeared as an anomaly in America past sullen Negro boys and confused street hustlers, rendered mute at her passage. Crimson, with a rural Alabama accent, engaged a toothless, grizzled veteran about the highlands of Vietnam. His long red dirt vowels gravely recalling the killing at Quan Tri, the Aishao Valley, Quezon, and then been foo. We finally descended into the dissolute drug and sex bazaars of the Tenderloin. The street lay ravaged in the abhorrent morning from the tawdry night of the craven and the crazed, the small-time rip-off artist and purveyors of abused flesh. 
We arrived at some flop house and part of shooting gallery for addicts, but also catering to the dispossessed who had begged enough handouts to afford a room with thick brass locks and chains and no questions. The halls had the penetrating smell of urine. Crimson's small space had a sprung bed, torn lace curtains revealing desiccated shades, a banging iron radiator thickly painted and peeling, and a small writing desk embossed by cigarette burns and crescents of stains from cheap wine. From the window down two floors, one saw a small enclosure from adjacent buildings that was filled with prophylactic raptors and shattered bottles and broken glass pipes and scorched tinfoil. The hollow echoes of lust and addiction, death and poverty, all faded now, washed clean for a moment in the purifying daylight. The curtains moved lightly in the morning air. Welcome, he said, to an example of one type of temporary safe house, easily acquired and discarded. Another may be an architectural study on a promontory above the sea, or shepherd's cottage in an alpine valley. This kind doubles as a reminder of human frailty and of the demons we oppose through our practice so that we don't ever forget. I said nothing, stunned not only by the fluidity of his movement among divergent worlds, by his changing appearances, dialects, mannerisms, and identities, but also by his comprehension of the darkness. He dismantled a portion of a closet ceiling and removed a folded set of clothes and a briefcase then rifled through the contents to produce a Belgian passport and an electric razor from a duty-free shop in Hamburg. Shaving and donning a cutting-edge black suit and seizing a gym bag, he showed me along the street for blocks, arriving at the desk of an executive gym on the tenth floor of a Luke's high-rise hotel. We were passed into the lockers by the thin receptionist. She was Celtic and post-punk swept back black hair and mauve singlet over her small high breast. Her lipstick was a fashionable Laurent Rouge pour couture. She had eyes of lustrous heights as if they had seen everything, as if they had been taken by the sky. We proceeded into a lengthy, serious workout. I, with a prison calisthenic routine made for cramped cages, crimsoned into heavy aerobic strides on a precipitously inclined treadmill, and both ending with floor sets, slow yoga, and a steam. Barely visible in the clouds, Crimson outlined the Washington rules. You are in the setting of my choice, not yours, so there's minimal fear of surveillance. No devices, no recorder taped to skin or agents behind. 
these walls. Your young revolutionary today must adapt to each decade's technology. The basic rules are old spycraft applied to modern threats, evolved from the code of the Peloponnesians, the writings of Machiavelli, from the Stats Polizei, the Cheka, from the NKVD, MI6. Tell me. A mnemonic is ABC, or automation, behavior, containment. Too briefly summarized, first we consider automation. Cameras are everywhere. Cars and digital devices are locatable. All electronic footprints are retrievable. Second is behavior. Be forgettable. Act normally. Move between identities easily. Change lifestyles only operationally. The last is containment. Almost everyone talks. Pillows are not for secrets. Only ignorance is invincible to inquisitors. And of personal habits, work closely only with those known for more than 10 years. Exercise daily. No drug use other than the rare sacrament. For all is too serious for indulgence. We avoid even caffeine rather than whipping our senses daily. Embrace deep yoga. Meditate with every movement, every step. Like breathing. And of your security routine. Each morning, religiously ask, what if they came now? They carefully examine all notes, computer files, discard numbers, receipts, anything that leads to sensitive individuals or locations or those that know them. Once each week, do security day, sever or create a relationship drop negative habits, switch locations, review the rules. Constantly assume the opposition on the periphery. Study investigative probes at the edges of things. People arrested, surveillance, odd statements by desk clerks. Anything suggestive of hostile forces so our loving matrix doesn't unravel into the unforgiving world where people die in small steel enclosures. We sat in silence, then showered, toweled, and dressed. We passed the girl at the desk, who only nodded. She was strikingly lean in her tight leather pants and heels, dreaming of her nights dancing among blasted goth tribes in the artist. Soma district. In the noon crowds, Crimson revealed her background. We watch her as we do selected persons, for we might approach her one day asking for some small and harmless but critical service. 
Crimson described the girl as first appearing one sunrise on the empty streets, careening about joyously with her boyfriend, obviously survivors of a psychedelic night. Confronting me suddenly before walking away, she said, We're not high on drugs or anything. The girl dismissed Crimson as some conservative businessman, ignorant of her revelations, disapproving of her gleaming morning. A pavement artist, one skilled in tracking by foot, located her crash pad and found her a safer job anonymously. She doesn't remember our encounter and will never be reminded. How many people do you provide for or develop? There are hundreds, perhaps thousands, monitored indirectly by the six within a hierarchical cartel of devotional equality. Each may be called upon for some small event but unknowing of the reasons. Although shared consciousness is an ancient tribe and spirit, the small operational side beyond the six is structured in cells, no one aware of the others. They are all ages, all walks of life, except for Vermillion's bonbonnier of erotic models which are forever young. You mentioned the tantric practices of Vermilion and his counter-surveillance. Would he include this girl? Perhaps, if she possessed a certain irresistible animal magnetism and the refined intelligence of a chess master. But our sexuality is varied. Two are practitioners of high monogamy throughout their lives, faithful to only one person, as am I. Another is non-sexual, anhedonic, Apollonian. One conducts serial monogamy. Vermilion is both tantric and Dionysian. But how would each employ her? If she were a skilled hacker, Cobalt might request that she breach security for a database. If she could trail a code in spycraft terms, she may be asked to walk naked by the fire as a burning man and engage someone we wish to study. If she were a graduate student in pharmacology or policy, indigo or magenta could involve her through multiple cutouts. For now, she sees all staff and guests at this hotel, quite close to City Hall and the Federal Building. I didn't pursue the subject. Crimson led the way as we walked along the boutique district, as restaurants and bars filled with young professionals, confident they had it made. He pointed out the clusters of cocaine users, those monologuing hyperkinetically between bouts of craving and begging more lines. I think of the Berlin epidemic of 1930, he said, where 
men and women sold garments from their backs for just moments of unbridled lust. Now as then, they make a Faustian bargain of exorbitant payment for what is, as the final joke, free for everyone and heavily available among those conducting the erotic rites. Vermilion will speak of such worship. Do psychedelics displace addictive drug use? From the earliest days, our hopes included prevention of the great infections. By these means, we try to inoculate against the poisons of cocaine, heroin, methamphetamine, alcohol, providing users and addicts with insight into their psychic vampires, if you will, that drain their life force. Sadly, they substitute a ridiculous powder for all rewards. They forget the power of normal orgasms. Indeed, all human pleasures, the laughter of children, racing clouds at the edges of storms, the ennobling dignity of kind acts, the triumphant bliss of a natural mind. We took a cab to Golden Gate Park for the afternoon, watching young families and cyclists about the meadows, beyond the half-moon bridge, by a formal Zen garden and a pond of white carp. We sipped herbal teas at the Japanese tea house. How is money regarded? I inquired. A salient economic detail in any study involving Harvard, one that would exclude the divinities of our fireside, the unwritable subtleties of mind. Money is a byproduct of the synthesis. It cannot be avoided, and to it we are neither attracted nor repelled. It is merely paper, a convenience for food, shelter, movement, the intricacies of identities and security operati. Drug traffickers singularly focus on profit, growing mad with greed. But psychedelic synthesis, with its chronic exposure to the substance, quickly eliminates those who hope to sate such hunger. One stands beside a furnace of consciousness, as it were an ark of the covenant, where silver and gold are vaporized instantly, and there is neither surplus nor lack. I thought of the Rhine maidens, where stolen river gold was made into the ring. Desire to possess it led to Gadadamarang, the end of the world. A gold Louis betrayed Louis the Sixteenth, fleeing near Varin, Crimson remarked, ever the sensitive, always reading me. To these pronouncements I hardly could reply. Crimson continued in his ruminations, finally speaking in an aside. Others of the six may comment on the paper. A prophet is a misconception of the inexperienced, but to us a distraction from duty, 
We prefer not to trade our soul for the whole world, but rather admire the words of Epictetus and his contempt for gold. We live briefly in mansions and hovels which have the same flies. It is only love itself that is sought, which cannot be bought or sold. In its presence, a tin-roofed shack becomes a palace. In its absence, the glory of kings is but a beggar's tatters. We walked along the trails in the park to the ocean. Dusk loomed and swallowed the sunset, the city curving away from the frail golden light on the Pacific. The sea was brilliant, curling and flexing, then moody, awaiting in wonder the first constellations. In the early evening, we hailed a taxi and arrived in the mission near 16th Street, where we chanced upon a cluster of illegal immigrants on a street corner. Crimson approached with fluent and familiar salutations in Spanish, quickly retrieving several vials of crack and giving them a thick packet of phone cards. We were removed together down an alley where he smashed the vials underfoot. The cards will be used to call narcotics vendors from Mexico to Colombia confusing any software, aggregating names and numbers, and generating schools of red herrings for hostile analysts. His was a basic sanity, full of practical wisdom. He had a perfect aplomb as every confidence delivered with the prudence of a seminarian. But when he crushed the vials, I thought he muttered, violent epithets. They seemed to be Latin phrases, as in some rite. I recognized only the name of Lucifer. We straggled during our long walk to the warehouse district, finally arriving at the cheapest of ocean restaurants, haphazard with Montagnard weavings. We were restored with a simple meal of vegetables and rice, Crimson exchanged a why, a bow to the owner, and made his small daughter giggle incessantly with comments in Humong. I noticed she had a blue ribbon in her hair, and that Crimson placed his chopsticks reverently, as if it were some subtle practice. The evening fell upon us like the neon cool of subterranean blues. We entered the pounding, fulsome venues, their entries plastered with club posters under black light where mobs of mohawk-pierced youth and funerally black goths danced in broken loined rhythms. Some walls of electronic dance music were visceral with techno, drum and bass, trance, jungle, emo, and math rock. Couples lay devastated across lush pink cushions, chilling in tranquil ambient lounges 
or below masked dancers linked arms like the telepathic future celebrants in Clark's childhood's end, who moved in serpentine swarms of religious ecstasies across the planet. We mingled with separate groups and danced until exhaustion, clothes clinging and the last shreds of inhibition blown away. Powerful electromagnetic pulses from massive dynamos electrifying the city were transmuted by musicians' fingertips and holy concentration into the primal rhythms of epochs before speech and fire. In the ambient rooms, crimson slowly moved among these subdued and transformed ministering spirit conferring blessings, speaking softly in his gentle way like a physician among the newly born. Those who could speak returned earnest words of innate trust, their faces open to him, their eyes like pools of night reflecting fields of stars. At 4.30 a.m., as if synchronous with the previous dawn, we departed the clubs and walked for blocks, finally sitting on an isolated sidewalk, with crimson resting peacefully against the cement wall of an undistinguished building. I knelt beside him, drained and mute, after the comedy humane of intersecting tribes and electric youth, their reverie like the frantic joy of immortals. On the edge of vision, the Folsom bus groaned and slid diagonally down an anonymous alley, the fluorescent glare exposing elderly Mexican and Filipino women in shawls, punks swinging crazily from chrome poles, and unconscious drunks crashed across plastic seats. Like security, at the price of loneliness, a fog horn sounded its wet lips. A faint Pacific breeze began to move eastward across our hot faces. Crimson awakened me from a reverie, tapping the wall behind him thrice, slowly and sharply, and then spoke. One last warning, a counterpoint to our night's vulnerable ecstasies. This six-story building with no marking is 611 Folsom. On the fifth floor is the northern telecom switch for much of the Internet and phone traffic from the Western Hemisphere. Zetabytes of information from undersea cables converge here, all monitored by an optical splitter reflecting content to NSA. There are many such sensitive compartmentalized facilities. He had seen an adversary, that of liberty constrained. Crimson was a study in religious devotion. His words were hushed as before a great battle, imagining a world in fetters. Chromatic scale like membranes of light lit up the edge of sky. All information Every keystroke movement conversation is analyzed for terroristic intent 
This scrutiny will evolve to ever-lessening crimes, minor infractions, pre-crime analysis. Ultimately, behavioral and thought control technologies will influence every individual. Magenta and Cobalt will address these issues and the end of revolution. We feel one must act quickly. At this cold prescience, he stood, taking my hand warmly in both of his. He wished me at great length safety and peace. Until another space and time, he concluded happily. And where do you go now? I ventured with bravado holding for precious seconds. I must make breakfast for my children, he said and see them off to school. I thought then it was some cryptic parting. As a magician behind the silk robe of the lessening night, he was gone. Folsom Street was empty, but for grinding sanitation trucks. Weary, I slid down the wall, legs askew as light crept down the tips of old warehouses under a dusty flash of blue sky. My flight to Cambridge and the rigors of Harvard was due in only two hours. Half awake, I recalled how I had begun this study of six chemists and their international trafficking organization and how I had arrived at Harvard. I nodded for a while, dreaming of other walls, some of metal smeared with blood, some fragrant with jasmine and roses, caressed by soft bells. Thank you for listening. This is Leonard. If we think of different literary modes, we could say we have the following. And this is, of course, uh, in no way a complete list, but it just wants to set the scene a little bit for, for this particular novel. Um, the realistic in the mode of Tolstoy where the reality depicted appears to have substance and has an ethical underpinning which guides the fates of the characters like an imminent textual intelligence, you could say. We have, on the other hand, pure fantasy in the mode of Tolkien, where the reality depicted is a parallel universe which is recognizable in some aspects as familiar but which operates according to its own often non-realistic laws. And then you have the disturbing modes of Kafka and Borges, where the familiar appears to be infused with the uncanny, which gives the familiar a sense of the dreamlike and often, of course, of the nightmarish dreamlike. And then you have the mythological epic, a la Homer, which draws a detailed portrait of a collective, in this case the Hellenic collective, and then also you have 
the hybrid modes of somebody like Philip K. Dick, who, through so-called science fiction, can amplify the scope of possible narratives infinitely without losing touch with the human condition. On the contrary, through this mode he can deal with fundamental metaphysical questions concerning man's position in the universe, the role of individual and collective consciousness, and so on. Leonard Pickett sets out his stall by calling his book a literary experiment. The title of the book gives a clear indication what kind of experiment we are looking at. It is an experiment in the Borges tradition, meaning the boundaries of what is real and what is not, what is, in the words of Philip K. Dick, idios cosmos, one's own individual world, and koine cosmos, that which belongs to the collective, the community, will be tested out. And one can expect the boundaries to be fluid rather than rigid and clearly delineated. In the words of the author, Leonard Pickett, he intends to use a classical form, a mannered language applied to a theoretical drug trafficking operation. And he makes it equally clear that it's the government's fiction hypothesizing a psychedelic conspiracy. The author therefore puts in aesthetic distancing devices which we have to take seriously. The novel, despite the author's claim, is only partly a roman a clef, and it is up to the reader to give this weight or not. Like any great novel, this can be re this can be read the rose can be read on many levels. Some may like to read it as a kind of purely psychedelics inspired fiction. Some like to read it for a biographical angle, meaning to see it as a self-justification of the author regarding his own alleged involvement in LSD production and the penal consequences following from that. The latter reading certainly would do this book no justice. In the same way that the reading of the brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky as purely a portrait of a dysfunctional family come crime story would fall short of any meaningful interpretation. The first chapter of The Rose is a very strong starting point for the book. It sets the atmosphere, the scene, and the tone of the book. It launches it, you could say, straight into the stratosphere. Reading it feels at times like a tightrope act, because the language used is so finely calibrated and highly strung that any slip would feel like falling off that rope. This is the first important aesthetic device we have to take note of, the artificiality of the language used in this book. It is a literary language informed by vast amounts of reading the author has undertaken, has undertaken and is undertaking. He uses deliberately and at times old-fashioned literary language which originated from a very different societal and ethical conditions than the modern undercover drug world he is partly depicting. By doing this, the author is willing to be judged by these standards. Does the choice of this style work or not? The first chapter is a good example that it does work. 
that the author has made a wise decision to use a language which is a beautiful artifact, basically. The author creates an atmosphere of secrecy and conspiracy, a conspiracy which can either be judged as good for mankind or as a criminal conspiracy which undermines the structure of our society. Of course, both views are held simultaneously regarding the substance under discussion in this book, named as the sacrament and clearly identifiable as LSD. Like any great author, also this one has an uncanny knack to anticipate future developments, and one can say with some confidence that the scales are slowly tipping in favor of a benign view of the substance under discussion, that its potential for mental health and overall human evolutionary development is more and more recognized in research circles to do with neurology, consciousness studies and philosophy, where this substance has given metaphysics in the platonic sense a new, fresh, brisk wind. The author um, starts the chapter with great confidence when it comes to this when it comes to his conviction of the benign nature of the work of the six chemists, since he says and this is a quote, they moved about the shadowy earth with salutary motives, with salutary motives as the most devoted of societies, an invisible cartel of theologians and mystagogues. This is the end of the quote. How can one not be taken in, charmed by sentences of this nature? How can one not feel, how can one not feel hope and optimism in the face of these sentences regarding the future of mankind. And who does not want to belong to a circle of people who are in the know, who can lift the veil of illusory reality, who can pierce the fabric of mundane reality and get glimpses and experiences of the transcendental. And this is what the author brings to the table. And it is better done well, otherwise the so-called transcendental ends up to be kitsch, second-hand wear, borrowed from the annals of obscure, hackneyed mysticism and profound-sounding philosophy. The author, in my opinion, does very well, and he manages to vivify the transcendental through the prism of authentic experiences. Huxley's perennial philosophy is very much alive and kicking in this book. Right from the beginning, there's an intimation and even declaration of a parallel world better, more meaningful, more significant in evolutionary terms than the world framed by our everyday consciousness. Quote, a room full of moonlight to one's own imprisoned blood, end of quote, as the author so beautifully writes. Again, the author manages to lay a passageway from the sublime, the transcendental, the spiritual into the everyday world, or to put it another way, extraordinary states of consciousness in form and impact on the everyday consciousness, and by doing this fulfills the promise of the counterculture of the 60s, namely to expand our consciousness. And here, another advantage of the chosen mode and style of writing comes to bear. This book, despite its indebtedness to the named counterculture, is not stuck in the past. This is not a hippie treatise, and nothing wrong with that, but a kind of reinvention and reinvigoration of some of these dearly held beliefs. The book 
by using a highly strung literary style, has a thorough modern and visionary feel to it. And so we hear some introductory notes about the different chemists and how they go about their operations because they're being hunted, knowing that their their work would be penalized by life in prison, and that the threat of prison and being written from prison really permeates the book as well. There are these little asides about the horrors of being locked away, the inhumanity of it. And there are also these moments of, I guess you could say foreshadowing, or the sense of this darkness to come, um, which you know unfolds as the story unfolds. But since there is this foreshadowing, there's this element of time, linear time, unfolding or deconstructing at certain points. Glennard says for a moment um, that he feels as because there's a, they're separated from, he's separated from Crimson briefly, and then their discussion, his introduction is, is continued. But there's this moment on page 28 where he says, it seemed I stood at the crossroads of past and future, seeing in all directions. And then there's a list of scenery. And as you read the book, all of these scenes come up in the story. And so he, he actually is looking through time, not just figuratively, but in the specifics, it's in fact true that he's looking at different parts of the story. So it's a moment, there are several moments in the story where synchronicities and, and time seems to move in nonlinear ways, you could say. And the perceiving intellectual part of the self isn't the only agent, it, it appears, who's making decisions and leading to certain outcomes. So all of those themes are introduced early on here. And Crimson also mentions so the different roles that the different chemists play, different parts of a team effort to keep their illegal activities going in spite of this governmental force against them. Um, and they talk about how they deal with this sort of double life of being committed to a an effort that is seen as criminal, but that they see as pure and needing to be uh, fully recommitted to over and over again. So just that it introduces you this first chapter to the mindset of these figures and also Leonard's naivety and naivete in terms of he's just being let in on this information. And so the reader is sort of a parallel in the sense that we're just being let in on this information. And he's also led through very downtrodden communities in San Francisco, people who are cocaine users, etc. And we see, we follow Crimson and see how there isn't just this intellectual idea about their mission, but how he's actually living it out in his ordinary day-to-day -day interactions with people. Um, so he, on page 33, for example, he, he intervenes into these cocaine users. And he describes specifically, from the earliest, this is a quote, from the earliest days, our hopes included prevention of the great infections. By these means, we try to inoculate against the poisons of cocaine 
heroin, methamphetamine, and alcohol, providing users and addicts with insight into their psychic vampires. And throughout the story, this group of chemists, it, it's very clear that they're not creating drugs for the sake of drugs. And they specifically mention that they don't do any drugs beyond the rare sacrament, at least that's on page 31. They exercise daily, and Crimson continues, no drug use other than the rare sacrament, for all is too serious for indulgence. We avoid even caffeine rather than whipping our senses daily. Embrace deep yoga, meditate with every moment, every step, like breathing. So it's this real clear commitment to living out this faith in trying to put a finger on the scale against these forces that are trying to accumulate data to map and control behavior. And we're seeing that now. A lot of the story also has is very prescient in terms of things like the fentanyl crisis. Leonard foresaw the problems that we would, as a society, be, ha- be having with that now, far before that was actually a problem. Um, and just thinking through the implications of some of the chemical technologies and ordinary technologies, like there's this emphasis on the government's mapping data collection, controlling people through, you know, things that have happened recently, like the um, the Cambridge Analytica scandal in England, where they got data on people and then exposed them basically to tailored propaganda in order to kind of get people to behave in certain ways based on that data collection. That's the sort of thing that these chemists are up against. So the idea of creating the sacrament, the creation of the sacrament is one part of this larger resistance to these forces of tyranny and control and oppression that are seeking power over freedom for all. So those are the kind of big themes that are introduced here, um, including the connection. It's a sort of, there are these Luciferian analogies, um, like towards the end on page 35, Crimson crushes these vials of drugs and it says, but when he crushed the vials, I thought he muttered violent, violent epithets. They seem to be Latin phrases, as in some right. I recognize only the name of Lucifer. So there is this sort of, as I was saying, cosmic or almost like Paradise Lost style good versus evil um, battle that is going on in the background. And so the implication, though, is that these forces, this fight between power and control and freedom are happening in the background of our ordinary life. And he's, Leonard is just getting a glimpse into the, the larger implications. And as I was mentioning, many of which have actually played out, the stakes of which are much greater now in our everyday world today than they were when Leonard first wrote this book. So his fingers were really on the pulse of a lot of the concerns with the kind of the crossroads we're at civilizationally at the moment. So even though there is this abstract, figurative, often difficult language, it's communicating something that's very real about our times and the stakes involved and the ability 
for people to use non-ordinary states of consciousness to get glimpses into better alternatives for how to live and how to relate and how to notice and help free ourselves from parasitic controlling forces that aren't necessarily working in our best best interest. So those are the larger themes. And I also just wanted to point out that this also, this chapter, this first chapter really is trying to, I guess, teach how to read the book, introduce some of the themes and also the logic in a way behind the book. And the, the line that really stands out to me is on page 27, towards the bottom where Leonard's speaking to Crimson and Crimson is saying he'll find him again in San Francisco. So he's, he's Leonard's saying he wants to learn more. And then Crimson responds, experience is more indelible than rhetoric, friend. Visit San Francisco Saturday, anywhere downtown at sunrise. I'll find you. So that line, experience is more indelible than rhetoric. There's this idea that the ideas expressed in the story, by having it in this literary style, you are going through these experiences as experienced by Leonard. And you learn ideas and perspectives by going through the experiences that you wouldn't internalize in the same way if you saw those same ideas listed in bullet point form. So by having the experience, the communication happens in a more indelible, more effective, embodied way than a purely intellectual transmission of concepts, if that makes sense. So that's it for now, just uh, some brief thoughts, and I look forward to continuing along more with all of you. Thanks. The style at this stage evocates a world composed of light, colors, and music, very fitting, obviously, to the topic in hand. The world depicted is a fluid space-time continuum where the boundaries between the worlds of different consciousnesses, if that is a permitted plural, at work are porous, to say the least. The contact high referred to in this chapter is just a good way of describing the natural merging tendency of our consciousness with the surrounding greater mind if we allow it free reign, rather than limiting it, limiting it to our default mode network operations, to speak in neurological terms. Just like Richard Wagner in the beginning of his Rheingold creates a world out of a repetitive three-note drone, I think 172 bars long or something like that, these characters appear to originate from light and sound, which is underscored by their names as colors, crimson, indigo, vermilion, magenta, and cobalt. The characters are elusive and ethereal because they are partakers of the mystery. Characters who have seen, I quote, the dancing flames and prayer fans and movement of spirit, end of quote, as the author writes, and operate at the same time as hard-nosed undercover agents for the expansion of consciousness and the liberation of human beings. The description of this double existence is masterful in this book, in my opinion, and it makes me reflect on how much of this double life is a result of 
irrational so-called drug laws where people have to go into illegal activities in order to partake, produce, distribute or whatever of substances which on balance seem to have the potential to give mankind a direction which serves not the greedy clique of some individuals but man in general in the context of nature or to put it shamanically in the context of Mother Earth? Or is this part of the long-standing dichotomy of the secret sciences of hermeticism, alchemy and other esoteric teachings and the currently dominant strain of one-sided rationalism? Of one-sided rationalism. Maybe it is a combination of the two or maybe it is both at the same time. So crimson, indigo, vermilion, magenta and cobalt are Homeric ship colours, as the author points out, which provides an important frame of reference in this book. The classical tradition, more specifically the Hermetic and pre-Socratic tradition, which reveals the metaphysical substratum of the book. Quote, The fire's heat against the cold sea air became the allegory, allegory for the worlds balanced by practitioners of these clandestine arts. It's such a beautiful quote, we'll say it again. The fire's heat against the cold sea air became the allegory for the worlds balanced by practitioners of these clandestine arts. End of quote. This is the fire within creation, the creative principle, the prima materia of Heraclitus, revealed by these chemists, alchemists, and would suggest that the author views the sacrament as part of a long, cryptic, secret stream of consciousness underlying the stream of purely cerebral consciousness. It is a continuation of the hermetic tradition going right back to the pre-Socratics, a process of removing layers upon layers of dense materialistic philosophy which we have accumulated over the centuries, revealing in the end, after many purifications or resettings of the mind, again, the roomful of moonlight to one's imprisoned blood. And bringing to light what Heraclitus called the latent form, which is the master of the obvious form. And if I'm not completely mistaken, this is what the author manages to achieve in this first chapter. He makes not only visible the latent form, but lets it create the obvious form. Aesthetically speaking, this could go so easily wrong in the hands of a less accomplished writer than Leonard Pickett is. But in this chapter, it is clearly very, very successful. Another theme is that of freedom and captivity. And saying this, it is impossible not to think of the current plight of the author, languishing in a high-security prison in Arizona, surrounded by violent criminals of the most dangerous kind. A penalty, in my opinion, and this is only my opinion, and I have no idea how the author thinks about this, but a penalty, in my opinion, which appears to be driven by a sadistic pleasure of depriving a human being of even minimum contact with nature. A punishment which has nothing to do with the rational penal code, in my opinion, 
but which reminds me of Philip K. Dick's beautifully empathetic statement in his book Escanna Darkly, which describes the lives of people who were entirely punished too much for what they did. Coming back to this theme of freedom and captivity, it is as if the characters originate from a free, transcendental realm. They manifest out of nothing, a creation ex nihilo. I can only speculate whether this is some kind of conscious or subconscious wish fulfillment on the part of the author. It certainly works as a literary device. There, the character's tasks appears to be to break the limits of materialistic limitations, to break free from living in an exile on this earth, in the neoplatonic sense, or in the Gnostic sense, really, which depicts the cosmos as a kind of malfunctioning, irrational mechanism which needs salvation from the true creative force which lurks in the background, accessible to some, invisible to most. They, the characters, are engaged in an alchemical process of reversing the separation and destruction from nature, from cosmos, from the greater mind, a transmutation, even transubstantiation, the true change of gross matter into sublime energy or the disclosure of the sublime energy hiding in gross matter, a putting back together, one could, th one could say. Or, as the author puts it again so beautifully, there's fission and fusion of thought and feeling, as forgiveness for all blasts heavenward. Dissolute chaos renders to absolute certainty, wrenching ignominy and confusion transmute to clarity and peace. The tranquil veils of Elysium are welcoming us. End of quote. I would claim there's no contemporary author who can capture this unbearable dichotomous tension better than Leonard Pickett. And that makes me reflect one more time on his current situation in the prison. I have no idea how he keeps his sanity, his equilibrium, his undiminished interest in life under these conditions. Respect and love is what the author deserves. The juxtaposition of the inner blast of the sacrament, which leads to liberation, and the outer blast of the atomic bomb, which leads to destruction, captured in one perfect cadence. Let's repeat it because it's so beautiful. There's fission and fusion of thought and feeling as forgiveness for all blasts heavenward. Dissolute chaos renders to absolute certainty. Wrenching ignominy and confusion transmute to clarity and peace. The tranquil veils of Elysium are welcoming us. Beautiful stuff. The book has a deliberately revelatory tone. Chapter 1 reveals our own buried alternate history, the holy grail of philosophers, and with it the suppressed source of healing, the cure. The chemist Crimson embodies, or as the author calls it, <clears throat> re-aggregates this tradition in its various manifestations. Paracelsus, Hermes Trismegistus, Dionysian intoxication, the Delphic priest, Galen, Vesalius, the angel St. John saw in the sun, etc. 
The revelation is that redemption, healing, the cure, the fusion with the divine is always a possibility for those who are willing to drop beneath the rigidities of pure rationality. Just as much as the author in real life suggested a way out of the opioid crisis, 20 years before anybody in the press even picked up on it and then it was too late, the author of The Rose of Paracelsus provides a potential map for addressing what is the disease of our modern time. Spiritual desiccation, the loss of the connection with the divine, and that also means nature. The woods of Arcadia dead, as Yeats put it, and he also knew that only words, sacred words, can save us now. What the author describes as, quote, conversion into a privileged heterodoxy, or, quote, a bewitchment of concealed knowledge, end of quote, is a continuation of the German philosopher Adorno's message in a bottle idea. Sacred knowledge is passed down a network which subverts the official surveillance network, which is limiting and inhibiting, controlling in its intention, while this network of chemists is the opposite, disinhibiting and unlimiting, a network of messages which ignite the fire within us, burn away the dross of social conditioning and cleanse the soul of everything fake and inauthentic. Leonard Pickett gives in this chapter a unique voice to those who have not given up on spiritual freedom, self-autonomy, a belief in the Elysium to be found in our psyche, consciousness, soul, whatever we want to call it. In Koine Greek, which neatly connects the Homeric heritage with the early anarchic Christian tradition, it is stated that a basilea to theo entos umon estin. The kingdom of God is within us. The first chapter of The Rose of Paracelsus is Highlander, and for me, it's really interesting. That makes me think of Scotland, but actually where it's taking place is Inverness over on the west coast of uh, the United States. And there's that interesting sense of this remote landscape, wherever it happens to be, and that our narrator is going to meet uh, the secret chiefs, you know, the mountain-dwelling, mysterious Illuminati masters, figures who guide or attempt to guide the destiny of humanity. And that's what he encounters initially with Crimson at this liminal space by the sea. And then they sit around the fire and there's references to all kinds of things. There's alchemy in there. There's magic in there. There's the peyote ceremony of the Native American church is referenced in there. The idea of being a Rosicrucian of behaving as though you are just a normal member of society but then this deep covert operation to create planetary scale batches of lsd as part of a compassionate project to help evolve our species it's a it's a remarkable opening for a remarkable book it combines the the very grand with the very ordinary so the practicalities of lighting a fire and the small details of the conversation and the way that someone's hands are moving. 
and then coupling that with the, the cosmic scale, the grand scale. So in that intro, intro section, we've got set up for essentially the rest of the book. So we know that there are these six chemists with this remarkable power to kind of induce a psychedelic state by simply being in their presence. And we have that sense of the beautiful and the terrible uh, that holds true and is counterpointed throughout the book and the sense of the great compassionate and this kind of Christic idea of suffering and of redemption and then things like addiction and the way that the darker side, the more difficult or unpleasant side, perhaps is better to describe it as, of the drugs and the drug experiences being dealt with. So issues like money are addressed in that and issues of having to live these duplicitous double lives. The phrase that's used at one point is a, 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 that our narrator talks about having a moral unease. And I think that's very much where this is because even Crimson in the chapter says, well, we don't know where this leads. We feel that this is the right compassionate thing to do, but also references all of those other psychoactive and psychedelic uh, substances and changes that are coming into culture. So I think that there's very much this, it is a kind of messianic thing. It's this idea that these people are trying to, to change the world and they believe what they're doing is right in the same way that historically we know that, you know, people like the Brotherhood of Eternal Love, absolutely, that was their mission. That's what they thought was a good thing. And perhaps they were and perhaps they are still right. Yeah, they even explicitly say, think of the early, the first early Christians um, and how they would have felt when they were doing what they were up to. And they wouldn't have known exactly what it was that things were going to lead to. So it has that sense of a religious mission. So listening to a whole chapter rather than just the excerpts that we did for the initial episode of this podcast, listening to a whole chapter in one go, as we just have done, which took an hour and a half or however long it is, is a very different experience. You immerse yourself in it in a different way. It has that filmic, cinematic quality to it, partly because of the length of the thing, but also because of the, the sweeping passages, the, the camera of the text pans over the different landscapes and takes you into the intimacy of the scene where someone's hands are conjuring things together, whether that be the fire or a scene from a far-off country and time and place that you can um, immerse yourself into the readings is very different. So it's important, I think, to prepare yourself with a, a nice cup of tea or whatever is your favourite beverage of choice. Make yourself comfortable and really settle into it. Listening to a whole chapter in one go is a, a deeply moving, deeply intense, but deeply fulfilling experience in a way that, that a good meal is rather than a quick snack. I found listening again to a recording that's been made in prison and has been taken from a phone line which is only available for a few short minutes each month to Leonard. And so that, that recording is has been done over a long period of time and cut together with only those brief little announcements uh, indicating the fact that this is from uh, prison, uh, that the reading is coming. And of course, it's deeply moving because that's where he is in that place and has been for a long time. And that's where this beautiful uh, text and these gorgeous poetic phrases and these 
great sweeping vistas of narrative are coming to us from. They're coming to us, these great sweeping vistas of, of language from a tiny enclosed box surrounded by many caged people uh, in an isolated desert in the United States. And that's a very powerful and very moving thing to listen to. It can only add to the respect um, that I have for Leonard for him to devote time to not just to read this passage, this chapter, in uh, over which must have taken weeks, if not months, to do, given his allotted phone calls. But the the way that he's collected all of these ideas and thoughts and put them down on, with paper and pencil um, and created this book. So that concludes the first chapter of The Rose of Paracelsus. We hope you enjoyed listening. Please feel free to contact us with comments and questions on the material. Signing off, I'm Alexa. And my name is Kat. Thank you for joining us. A Basilea to feo entos umon estin. The kingdom of God is within us. And you can add your comments about this podcast on the program notes page for podcast number 644, and you'll find that page at psychedelicsalon.com. Also, if you wish to comment by email, please send your comments to therose at psychedelicsalon.com, and I'll send them on to Kat, Alexa, and Leonard. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Namaste, my friends.